All right, welcome back to More Than Sunday Mornings and the midweek resource for Cornerstone On The Go. As we finish out February, I hope that you had a great Valentine's Day. I hope it's been a great couple months uh, for the new year for you and your family. And as we begin to turn the page of another month in the calendar year, we continue flip through the pa- to flip through the pages of the book of Exodus. We looked at how God demonstrated his superiority. He revealed himself as the one true God, both to the Israelites and the Egyptians, with Moses in the Ten Plagues. Today we focus our attention on Moses and the Ten Commandments. I'll go ahead and be upfront with you. This is going to be a two-week episode, just as we dove into uh, this week and in, in the topic of the Ten Commandments. There was just too much to cover uh, in one week. So we'll do a part one this week, and then part two we'll look at the remaining uh, commandments and how they instruct us to relate to one another. With that being said, I grew up in church, and I was very blessed with growing up in church, first and foremost. But on top of that, I had some really great Bible teachers as a child. One of my favorites was a man named Mike. I was at Mike's Sunday school class, probably as a third or fourth grader, I think somewhere around there. 28 years later, it's kind of hard to tell. But Mike was very creative. He was very hands-on, among other things, as a teacher. And I never will forget, as we were going through the book of Genesis, he would bring objects in each week. And those objects or those items would tie into the scripture and the lesson that we would have that Sunday morning. And at the end of each lesson, he would take a piece of string and a thumbtack, and he would hang up those items along the wall, that wood panel wall uh, on that, that bottom floor of the church building. So for instance, when we talked about God creating people, he brought in a bag of dirt, hung it on the wall, and also a rib of an animal and put it on the wall. For Genesis chapter 3, to represent the fruit, the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve partook of, he brought in a plastic apple. I never will forget several years later, Many years after being out of that Sunday school class, I'd started working with some youth groups and I had called Mike up and asked him if I could have the cat of nine tails and the crown of thorns among some other items that he used to teach us about Christ's passion week and crucifixion. But I'll never forget my first encounter with the Ten Commandments. And that was, again, in that paneled room on the bottom floor of that church building when Mike comes in holding two great big gray stones. I mean, these are slabs of rock. They've got the jagged edges, and yet they've got the flat top. And on these flat surfaces, he has taken a Sharpie marker and written the Ten Commandments. I don't know if this was my first encounter about the ten, with the Ten Commandments, but I know it's the first time that I can remember uh, sitting down and going through those in a church setting or a group setting. And again, I don't know. I'm sure that in my children's Bible, mom and dad probably read me the story. I'm sure that even as a preschooler, I heard about Moses and the Ten Commandments. All I know is this experience in Mike's classroom is etched forever in my memory, and it's the first memory that I have of the Ten Commandments. It was here that I began to learn that the Ten Commandments shaped how I was to relate to God and to other people. And almost two decades later, and even as I've prepared a little bit for this podcast and the blog post this week, I learned more and more about these commandments and what they involve. And yet, no matter what I've learned or what I'll learn in the future, the basic point and premises of these Ten Commandments 
was to show the Israelites and to show us today how we're to relate with God and how we're to relate with other people. So 3,500 years ago, God gave the people of Israel this Decalogue. Now, a Decalogue, that's just the fancy name for the Ten Commandments. It describes a set of rules with binding agreements or binding authority. He gave this these commandments, this Decalogue, to a newly freed nation of slaves so that they would know how to relate to him as their God and how to relate to one another as a covenant community. The Lord has delivered Israel from Egypt, and through his power he has displayed in each one of the ten plagues his power and his sovereignty and himself as the one true God over any of the gods or goddesses of Egypt. He's kept his promises to Abraham and his descendants. After 400 years, he has freed them from the nation who bound them and has disciplined or judged that nation, and they've come away with great wealth. Now, before God takes them to the land of promise, the promised land, the land of Canaan, he wants to further set his people apart and reveal himself to them. He's taken them out of Egypt, but now he's trying to get Egypt out of his people. So at the foot of Mount Sinai, we see that God provides further guidance on how to relate to him and one another. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, we see Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll obey my command, if you'll obey and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message that you must give to the people of Israel. First and foremost, God reveals himself as their God there in verse 4. He's keeping his unconditional end of the covenant that he made with Abraham back in Genesis. However, if the people of Israel want to enjoy the blessings that come with being God's covenant community, they've got to obey him. Biblically, obedience is proof of our trusting God and also our love for him. Here we see the terms of the covenant spelled out. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings cursing. If they'll obey the terms of the treaty that are spelled out in Exodus chapter 20 and in the following chapters, there'll be a people separated to him, God's own special people, and thus able to receive his continued blessings. The first half of Exodus chapters 1 through 19 tells us of Israel's miraculous deliverance. God's rescue of them from the slavery of Egypt. The second half of the book, let's just say Exodus chapter 20 through 40, show us the spelling out of the formal agreement between God and his people, known as the Sinai Covenant, because it's made at Mount Sinai. With this in mind, this provides the context of Exodus chapter 20, 1 through 17, the commands or the passage, the verses that we commonly refer to and traditionally refer to as the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are part of the larger covenant that God makes with Israel. And while the covenant guidelines begin in 20 verse 1, they don't include until Leviticus chapter 27 verse 34. The following verses that are our focus this week uh, containing the covenant stipulations are patterned after uh, treaties 
ancient treaties, where the conqueror made a treaty with the conquered, which benefited them with his care and with his protection, as long as they abided by the expectations set out by him in the treaty. Chapter 20, verse 1 tells us that God communicated to the people of Israel himself, audibly, not through Moses. As further as he further revealed himself to them and entered into this covenant with them as a nation. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 is the preamble portion of the treaty. Uh, The preamble of a treaty identifies the giver, which in this case is the Lord your God, and the recipients, the ones rescued from Egypt. These are the people that the covenant encompasses. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, we read, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God. We see the giver who rescued you from the land of Egypt. We see the recipients, the place of your slavery. Nothing now. This is, this is one of those aha moments or something I just learned recently going through this with our college group. But nothing in chapter 20 is described as a commandment, a law, or the like. This translation detail might shock you like it did me, but the Hebrew term that the New Living Translation you, um, uh, translates as <laughs> instructions are, is just simply words. These are the words that God gave to the people of Israel. We see Moses describe it this way, or describe them this way in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 21. But we can be sure, even though, that these words recorded for us in Exodus 20 and delivered to that generation at the foot at Mount Sinai are not called commandments, they were still expected by God to follow them. It's by following his words that they would act in a way that were basic to his covenant. These 10 words carry more significance than routine laws. These expectations, traditionally and conveniently known as the Ten Commandments, are more like a national constitution than the contents of a codified section of law. It's more like our Bill of Rights instead of laws coming off of that or the Constitution for us today. The following hundreds of laws in Exodus and Leviticus show how these covenant stipulations are to be regulated in daily life. Much like individual laws today deal with particulars flowing flowing from our constitutional guidelines. So with that being said, let's look at the words of Yahweh to his covenant people. Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 says, You must not have any other gods but me. After demonstrating his power and his greatness over the gods and goddesses of Egypt and rescuing the Israelites to be a people for himself. He goes ahead and makes it known to them that he will not compete with anyone or anything else for their devotion. It was he that delivered them, so they should not have any other gods but him. He was not to be one of many gods, nor was he to be simply at the top of a deific hierarchy of beings. Relational purity was what he called his people to as they left this polytheistic religion of Egypt. And they were about to encounter the gods of the Canaanites as well. And for us today, he calls us to this same relational purity with himself today. This relational purity is the product of pure theology. For these generations past and for us today can be summed up beautifully by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And he is the one that we are to worship. He is our covenant God, the one who has called us into a relationship with him. And he does not want 
to compete for our affections and our loyalty because no other God or no other being, no other item is worthy of that affection than our creator God who delivers us from our slavery and sin and who will guide us safely to our eternal home. Next, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. In these verses, God forbids his people from making the resemblance of anything out of anything to be used as an object of worship. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 20, the Lord exposes the foolishness of worshiping idols, for he alone is God. He's a jealous God who will not share his glory with another. The Lord is jealous over his people, which is a good thing. God's jealousy is a good thing because it is always a God thing. As the only God who has rescued us from our sin, brought us into covenant relationship with him through Jesus, and who will do life with us until he takes us to be with him, he alone is worthy of our worship. Quickly, just to make note, uh, because the latter part of these verses or the later verses in this passage can can cause some confusion or some thought, I guess. Uh, verses 5 and 6 don't mean that God will punish an innocent generation for the sins of the preceding generation. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. But God will punish the present generation if they do the same sins they learn from their parents. It's also important to remember that even if one generation tries to break a cycle from a previous generation and follow the Lord, they might still suffer or experience difficult circumstances as a natural result of the parent's sin. Just like Joseph uh, suffered and had consequences because of his brother's sinful actions and Potiphar's sinful actions, so can the next generation as well, even if they're doing their best to correct the the sins of the generation prior and seek God and live for him, there can still be some leftover consequences from the previous generation that they had to battle through and deal with and suffer through. While God promises not to let rebellious generations go unpunished, he also promises not to withhold his love from those who love him supremely. As we move on to the third word, we come to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Well, this word of God, this commandment of God, does tell us not to use God's name distastefully. It encompasses more than just simply using God's name as a cuss word or flippantly. In ancient times, a person's name was a reflection of a person's character. So, in other words, God's name includes all of who he is, the sum of all of his attributes. God is love, he's merciful, gracious, true, faithful, holy, righteous, and jealous, among other things. We take his name in vain when we misrepresent him to others in our speech or actions. We are to reflect his name, to reflect him to those around us in such a way that we bring honor to his person, that we exalt his character and his reputation. 
May we pray that God would help us to imitate him in everything we do as his dear children, as Paul commands us to do in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. The fourth word and the last one that we'll look at this week together is Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, to remember the Sabbath day. Moses writes, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. We'll see an emphasis throughout this commandment as as shown in these verses on stopping and keeping it holy. Clearly, the purpose of the Sabbath cannot be limited either to a break from work once a week or just to setting aside one day a week to focus on godliness. Rather, both are to be done every Sabbath. Okay, so let me explain. Like many other ancient covenants, they had a they it, they contained a sign to remind the people of the covenant so they wouldn't forget about it. The Sabbath day functioned as a sign for the Mosaic or the Sinai covenant here. The Sabbath provided a regular reminder each week for everyone as they stopped working their normal routines and devoted themselves to worship and by doing so demonstrated their keeping of the covenant. The word Sabbath comes from a common Hebrew word meaning stopping, stoppage, or cessation. The Sabbath is the day in which one stops their regular work and breaks from their daily routine for the sake of focusing on God more than any other time during the week. The Jews absorbed, observed, <laughs> I get it out. The Jews observed the weekly Sabbath on Saturdays. But after Jesus was resurrected on Sunday morning, the church designated Sunday as the weekly Sabbath as a way to remind believers of this new covenant we enjoy because of Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection. I'll be honest with you, I often find myself wanting Chick-fil-A on Sundays. After church, more than any other time during the week, and transparently because of my selfishness, I get a little annoyed that they're not open so that I can satisfy this craving. But before you judge, okay, and again, I'm human like you, the Holy Spirit quickly convicts me of this selfishness. And then he graciously leads me to thank the Lord that Chick-fil-A honors God in such a way. They keep the Sabbath holy. They stop work to provide opportunity for their employees to worship freely if they so choose. And by doing so, it is a great, a great witness uh, to the world at large. This this is the same idea uh, that was to be observed by the original hearers. Those who had servants or employees were allowed to give them time off to worship and seek the Lord at a heightened level than their usual routine during the week would allow. Yet, just like today, some tasks need to be accomplished on the Sabbath. Despite it being the weekly Sabbath, the animals still needed to be fed, crisis is addressed, the priest would have still needed to offer sacrifices, and within our culture today, you could easily find yourself working on Sundays, not not necessarily because you want to, but out of necessity. If you work on Sundays, select a day that you have off and use that day to break away from your workday routines to rest and seek the Lord. 
Some of, some of our larger churches today are able to provide worship gatherings and small groups more than just on Sunday mornings. If you're fortunate enough to have one near you, then gather with other believers on your weekly Sabbath to grow in your faith and worship together. The idea for the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai and us today is to do everything possible, to stop everything possible, to provide a day for all who desire to receive a day of rest for spiritual emphasis, including growth and service, to be able to do so. God never meant for us to have one lazy day a week. Instead, it's to have one day a week where we focus on doing His will, to worship, to learn, to study, to serve, to care, and to strengthen our spirits. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we set aside this day a week to focus on the Lord and our spiritual nour- nourishment, we're being obedient to God's command found here in Exodus 20. When we Sabbath, we imitate our Heavenly Father and trust Him to, pro- to provide seven days worth of needs with only six days of our attention put toward meeting those needs ourselves. When we stop this week with commandment number four, I want us to to summarize it like this and to leave with this. The Ten Commandments can be broken up into two sections. The first four that we covered today teach us how we can relate to God and love Him supremely. As we finish out commandments number five through ten next week, we'll look at how they teach us how to love God by loving our neighbor as ourselves. This echoes what Jesus said when asked in the New Testament about what the most important law of God was. Jesus was a masterful teacher, and he was able to, in just one to two sentences, be able to take and, and condense the 613 commandments of Judaism into two. He was asked, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of them all? And in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 30, we see these words of Jesus. The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. When we keep these first four commandments, we love God supremely. But I'm thankful that if you're like me, God has shown me that I don't love him supremely all the time. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says that if we love God, we'll keep his commandments. But more often than not, I find myself more like Paul with this internal struggle. Paul said in Romans 7 that the things that he desired to do in keeping with God's commandments, he found himself not doing. This is what it means for us to fail in loving God supremely. Every time that I choose to love myself and rebel against God and his word, to do something that I know is wrong or to avoid doing something that I know is right is sin. And in that sinful decision and action, I am saying that I love myself more than God. My inability to love God faithfully and supremely perfectly lets me know that I'm a sinner and that I'm in need of rescuing. I'm incredibly grateful to say that Jesus kept all of God's commands, both through his actions and also in heart. His flawless obedience allowed him to be that sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. Jesus died in my place, and because of that, I am made right with God, and through his resurrection, I can enjoy that right relationship with the Father. 
because of being justified before God, justified being a legal term, and it changes our position before God, our standing before God, from a guilty sinner to not guilty. Because of faith in Christ and Christ's finished work on the cross, his perfect sacrifice and substitutionary work on my behalf, I stand before God as if I had always obeyed or just as if I have never disobeyed any of his commands. But this is only possible because of Jesus. And with this new legal standing before God, we stand ready to receive all the blessings that come from being part of his covenant people. And as part of his covenant people, we are also called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus summarized the remaining commandments with that command. I hope you join me next week as we finish out Moses and the Ten Commandments.